This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. The underlying principles that are in this passage and in this book that we're studying um, are so relevant to today. They really truly are. Uh, the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus in their day, as we've seen leading up to this point, and if you haven't been with us through this series, I'd encourage you to go back to our, our podcasts on YouTube, and you can, can watch and listen the last three weeks. Uh, but the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus are under attack. And Paul's concerns are for the church at Ephesus, where Timothy's located. He writes to Timothy, but Timothy's at this church in Ephesus where he's serving as his representative. So he's concerned, Paul is, about the church, but he's, in this letter, comes across that he's a little bit more concerned for Timothy himself, and who, as we've seen up to this point, no doubt is feeling alone. He's feeling pressured to back down on the gospel that he received from Paul that he's been teaching, and also pressured to back away from his loyalty to Paul, who writes this letter from the Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, It was the prison where you didn't come out of. It was the prison where you were sent uh, not to be kept for, for weeks or days or months. It was the prison where you were sent to die, to be executed. And that's where Paul is. And a lot of people have given up on Paul because he's in prison. And a lot of people think, you ever think this way when somebody, something bad happens in their lives? Maybe they get sick. Uh, they, they, um, uh, maybe they have some, some kind of catastrophe happen in their lives. And do you ever wonder in the back of your mind, boy, I wonder what they did to get God mad at them. You ever think that? Shame on us, because <laughs> that's typically not the, the uh, Paul wasn't in prison because God was upset with him. God had him in prison. And Paul calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So there's a good reason why he's there. I'm going to read verses 13 to 18. So follow along with me. And then I want to bring out three lessons, three points this morning from this passage for you and me today. He writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you. Now we'll find out what that good thing is entrusted to him, but we we know what it was from what he said earlier um, in the passage last Sunday. This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Aren't you glad you don't have to get up here and say those names? Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. And you know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Now, point number one I want us to see this morning is this. There is no need to change the fundamentals of the faith. He says, hold on, Timothy. Hold on to what you've been taught. Don't let go of it. You get a firm grip on it. You keep it. Hold on 
to the pattern of sound teaching. And the word sound there doesn't mean a sound that you hear in your ears. It doesn't mean a body of water that's lying you know, a few hundred yards to our west. The word sound here means healthy. Um, it, means, um, it means it's healthy. It's whole. It's not missing any parts. It has no added ingredients. Um, we, we use this word in this way sometimes when we say we are safe and sound. All right, that's what it means. We're okay. You hold on to the sound, healthy doctrine that you've received from me because sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, is what causes growth. Now, earlier in the last few weeks, we've heard Paul's warning to these, to the Ephesian church's elders, the elders, the pastors of this church in Ephesus. And he told them in Acts chapter 20 that men would seek to make changes in the sound doctrine that he had introduced them to, that he had taught them. He said this in Acts 20 to them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves don't come in and love the sheep. Wolves come in to destroy the sheep. He said, they're coming in after I leave and I'm gone. Paul was kind of like the chief watchdog, you know? And he said, once I leave, they're going to come in and seek to destroy the church. But not only are they going to come in from the outside, he says, and men from among yourselves. As he's looking at this group of elders, I don't know how many there were. There were more than one. There could have been five. There could have been 10. There could have been 25. We don't know. But he says, from this group right here, someone's going to rise up with deviant doctrines to lure lure the disciples, the church, into following them. (coughs) Now, if you go to close to the end of the Bible and you find the little book of Jude, which is right before Revelation, just one chapter. A powerful letter that Jude wrote on the same subject that was threatening the churches. I want you to look. I've got some verses for you there, what Jude wrote to the churches. He said, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. I had to change what I'm writing. I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith. The word contend means to to battle for. It means to fight for, doesn't it? Contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that was delivered to the saints once for all. Why would you need to contend for the faith? Well, you would have to contend for the faith because the faith is being attacked. The faith is being undermined. You contend for it. You fight for it. For certain men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They have sneaked into the church. And they are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity. If you have the the New King James or the King James Bible, you're familiar with the word that's there, lasciviousness. They've turned the grace of our God into denying promiscuity and denying our own master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jude had hoped to write positive things to them. Jude was hoping as he wrote this letter, I want this to be an encouraging letter, uplifting letter, a cheering letter. I want, and he said, but I ha- can't do that because of things going on in the churches. Now, obviously, Jude didn't make that decision on his own because we believe and because the Bible teaches us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's writing what the Lord had for him to write. But he said, I wanted to write about these positive things, about the things we believe in our common salvation as Christians. But instead, I'm writing a letter to challenge you. I'm writing a letter to warn you 
about the apostasies, about the falling away that's happening among the churches right now, the deviations of doctrine that were infiltrating the churches. And this is happening. Think about it. This is, this, he writes this letter probably no more than 50 years after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. By the way, Jude is the brother of James who wrote the book of James, the letter with his name on it. And these two guys were the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. So he knew Jesus well. And, and so this isn't a long, long time after Christ lived on the earth. And he's writing about these things while the apostles are still alive and their doctrine was being changed into something unhealthy for the churches. Jude says it's allowing promiscuity in the churches. Now, promiscuity is generally a word that refers to people have no boundaries in their sexual lives. That's somebody who is promiscuous, sleeps around. He said it's allowing promiscuity in the churches or lasciviousness is how it's also been translated, meaning these false teachers now are coming into the churches and they're saying, hey, listen, Paul got it all wrong. The grace of God, and they talked about God's grace. We believe in God's grace, don't we? God's greatest grace is such an amazing thing, but they were teaching that the grace of God means this. There are no rules. There's no holds barred. You go out and live however you, you're a Christian. You're saved by grace. That grace gives you the freedom to live however you want. Just go ahead and, and have a great time. Grab all the gusto you can get because God's grace is there. And if you do something wrong, all you got to do is simply confess it to him. And he's good with that. He says, that's okay. Uh, I gave you grace. Paul addressed that issue in Romans, and Paul said, God's given us this abundant grace as Christians. So does that mean I can go out and live however I want and sin all I want? Because I'm thinking now, well, if God's given me grace because I'm a sinner, then I'll just sin even more so God can give me more grace. He said, is that what it means? And he says, no way. God forbid. That's not what he was talking about. So he's saying, this is something that's infecting the churches. They're living however they want, they had liberty to sin freely because they're covered by grace. And it sounds to me like, you know, uh, so much of what's being taught today in American Christianity. And think with me. If the apostles' doctrine that was mentioned all the way back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very first day the church began, they continued steadfastly, it says there, in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. If the apostles' doctrine was being undermined now so much less than 50 years after the beginning of the church. How much might it be being undermined today, 2,000 years later? So like Timothy, we need to always go to the Bible. That's why I said, if you don't own a Bible, let's get you one. You need to always go to the Bible. I said that, made this statement, I remember very well, the very first Sunday that I preached in this church um, as, as, as your pastor back in 1991. And I remember saying this to the church. I'm going to repeat it. Maybe not exactly the same words, but the same thing. We're, we're going to be asked, and you're going to be asked, and you already have been, I hope, by somebody that you work with in your neighborhood and your, your circle of friends that's going to ask you, um, about issues that are current, contemporary in our culture today and that, that they know 
Christianity has always stood against this and stood against that, but now they seem to be very common, very uh, very, uh, very normal in our society anymore. And they, and they ask you about those things. What do you think about this or that? Let me say this to you, church. Please hear me. Jot this down. It's in your notes, I think. But what I think or how I feel doesn't matter. Let's say that again. What I think, Rick, what do you think? Doesn't matter. How do you feel about this or that? Doesn't matter. That's not the issue. What I think or how I feel. What matters is what does the Bible say? That's what matters. That's why we need to be in the word of God. And by holding on to that answer, you should understand, Nag said, church, if that's what you say, well, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. And then you may get unleashed upon and called names, you're a hater, you're a bigot, you're this, you're so old-fashioned. And then, then I know what some of you are going to do. Well, I'm just telling you what Rick said to tell you. I'm just his fault. You know. <laughs> Thanks. If you stick with that answer, and that's the answer that I give, if you stick with that answer, please understand you're taking risks in today's culture, in today's time. It's the Bible the word of God, where his mind is revealed. It's where God's presence on earth was made evident in Jesus. We have the gospels. It's where the faith, as Jude said, the faith once delivered by Jesus and the apostles is found. And, and, and here I am, as, as I am in the twilight years of my ministry, meaning the light's at the end of the tunnel somewhere of my, of my pastoring. And I see that. Let me stop. Can I stop for just a second? Keep that thought in mind. Rick's in the twilight years of his ministry. Don't go out and start rumors. I was in a store, or not a store, but it was a store, a place of business a couple weeks ago, and I walked in, and a guy says to me, hey, I hear you're retiring. And I said, well, yes, someday. We all do, I guess, someday. I I don't know when. I said, where'd you hear that? And he told me somebody's name, a person I don't even know. And I thought, I know where that guy got some of this news from, from somebody right here in this room, all right? One of these days, I'm going to walk in because rumors spread. I'm going to walk into some place, and somebody's going to look at me, and their eyes are going to get real big, and they're going to say, gosh, I thought you were dead, you know? No rumors. I'm in the twilight years of my ministry, though, and I've been thinking about a lot of things, and I just sense from the Lord the need, Nag said church, the need to be sure this church holds firm to the pattern of sound teaching that we have in the scriptures. Number two, it says, Timothy, guard the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Not only hold on to the apostles' doctrine, but guard the gospel that's been entrusted to us. The word entrusted, it's an interesting word. It's it's a banking word. And it's it's a word that means deposited, like deposited in the bank. Guard the gospel that has been deposited to you, that you have, that you've been entrusted with. The gospel's been deposited with us. It's been placed into our hands. And it was already clear in the first century how quickly these things happen. And Paul will will go to a scripture where he says that to another group of churches, but it's already clear in the first century that the gospel was under attack. And one way to subtly attack the gospel is to change it a little bit. Don't change it much. Just change it a little bit here and there. 
rather than just come out and say the gospel that Paul gave you is totally wrong, just make some little changes to it. Oh, well, Paul left out this little tidbit in the gospel. That's how it's being attacked. It's easier to deceive Christians with a little change here and there. So they begin to change things in the gospel, these teachers, these apostates, Jude called them. Rather than call it wrong, it's easier to change it. And by saying things like, well, maybe if it wasn't so exclusive. You know, we have this gospel, and, and part of the gospel is believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. Maybe we, it wouldn't be so exclusive uh, if we made it somehow appear to a broader group of people. Listen, here's the deal with the exclusivity of the gospel. It is only, salvation is only found in one person, and that's Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ offers it to whosoever will, to, to the world. He offers it. So, but people would say, let's, let's um, make it appeal to a broader group. Maybe if we tried to make it more sophisticated, because the gospel is really simple. Maybe we try to make it more sophisticated by using terms that we think can help people understand it, but actually change it. Maybe we should make it harder. It's too simple. It's too easy. Maybe we should make it harder by adding this or that so it's not so simple. And all that was happening then, and the same things are happening now. Let me give you some examples uh, that, you know, first of all, let me say we can't change the gospel. Paul will get to that in a moment. But here's some things that we hear floating around, these different gospels floating around the world today. One is what I would call a works gospel. Works gospel says you got to do more things than bad and you'll be okay. That's what my mother taught me as a boy when I went to her when I was about seven. And I said, I've been listening, singing songs in Sunday school about heaven. I want to go to heaven. How do I go to heaven, mom? Well, mom grew up in a church that taught a works gospel. It's about doing, 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 obeying all these rules, doing all these things. If you do, she explained to me, you'll go to heaven if you do more good than bad. Works gospel. Another gospel that's a false gospel is what we call the prosperity gospel. Have you heard those guys on TV? Prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be wealthy. And it starts with sending me a check for $500 and then God will somehow give you a thousand. It's a false gospel. That's not true. Um, The grace plus works gospel. Here's the one that's really tricky. Because the grace plus plus works gospel says, yes, believe in Jesus Christ. But there's more to it. You have to do other things besides believe in Jesus Christ to be a Christian, to go to heaven. You've got to keep the Old Testament law, or you've got to be baptized. That's necessary for salvation. Or here's one that's very common. You need to surrender your life to Christ. Then there's the social justice gospel that tells us salvation means we In order to be saved, we've got to devote our lives to taking care of those in society and those in the world who are marginalized and suffering injustices like hunger and poverty. So we devote our lives to the Peace Corps and a lot of good organizations. But but we think by doing those things, I'm getting God's attention and God's going to say, yeah, I want you in my heaven. You're pretty good. You do a lot of great stuff. And then there's a gospel that's called the full gospel. Maybe you haven't heard that, but there are full gospel 
churches that's on their sign. And, and they say that the gospel of Jesus includes things more than the gospel. It includes things like miraculous spiritual gifts and so forth, full gospel. Like we have a partial gospel. Good works, now let me back up and look at those things I just said, or gospels, false gospels. Good works are the result of salvation. If you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then you read verse 10, he says, the re- and the reason God has saved us is to do good works. All right? They follow salvation. They don't precede it. They don't bring salvation. They come after it. Good works don't produce salvation. God wants to and will take care of all of our needs, but God never guarantees you and me to be wealthy. If you guarantee, and we say, well, we're Americans. We've got, we're doing pretty good here in America, man. I just looked at, at my, my investments, man, and the stock market's going crazy. We're doing great, and I think that's because I believe in Jesus. What do you tell the, the Christians in Haiti? You know, the Christians in really impoverished places, third world countries who have nothing, what do you tell them? Is it, you know, well, you, you must not believe enough? What do you tell them? It's not true. Being morally good, being baptized, keeping the law, surrendering all our lives, those are, those are good things. And, and I think they're important things, but they're part of being a follower of Christ, not a part of being saved. They don't make us saved. We won't. And, and, and we, more than anyone else, I believe, as Christians, should have compassion for the, what Jesus called the least of these. That's why we do things like the shoeboxes, because we know they're going to bring joy to some kids. They're going to get some things that otherwise maybe they would never have in their entire lives, but they're going to hear the gospel with it. So we should have compassion for them, but that doesn't get us into heaven. You could have brought 50 boxes today, and it will not get you into heaven. And some of you, too, maybe you're thinking this. You know what? Here I am today. I'm in church. I braved a nor'easter, a terrible, terrible storm to get here. Certainly that must count as something. God's going to let me into heaven because of that. And the answer to that is no. That's not going to get any of us into heaven. The gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that Timothy believed is the simple gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Where did Paul get it? Paul got his gospel from Jesus. The Apostle John, who wrote much about the gospel, got it from Jesus. John 3.16, are you familiar with that verse? For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son that so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him. John 20.31, John wrote toward the end of his gospel that he wrote the biography of Jesus, and he said, these are written, these things that I've written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. He wrote to the Romans, for we conclude that a man is justified, pronounced not guilty, by faith, by believing, apart from the works of the law. I want to read from another letter that he wrote to churches, the book of Galatians. You can turn back there if you'd like to and follow with me. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. Paul writes this book to this church that's being infected with false gospels. 
primarily the one that's gone after, that's in this, these Galatian churches, is a gospel that says you, you believe in Jesus, but you've got to also be Jewish to be a Christian. You've got to obey the law in order to be a Christian. And, and you read the book of Galatians, and it even, he's even talking about, you man, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised like a Jew. Now you want to talk about something that will chase people away. I think that might be it. But he says in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says, says, I'm amazed it's happening so quickly. It apparently hasn't been too long since these people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and become Christians and these churches have been organized. And then in a short matter of time, the Judaizers have come in, these false teachers, and said, well, Paul's gospel was incomplete. There's more to it. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel. He said, I called it another gospel, but really there is no other gospel. But there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news, want to change the gospel about Christ. But even if we, Paul and the other apostles, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. I don't know, maybe former Mormons here, if you know anything about Mormonism, where do they get their gospel? They say from an angel. Paul says, hey, shut that down. Even if an angel brings some other gospel, he said, let him be cursed. As I've said before, as we have said before, I say now again, if anyone preaches you a gospel contrary to what you've received, the curse be on him. He says, they ask him a question. Am I trying to please people here? Now am I trying to win the favor of people or of God? Because he knows he's making some people mad. Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now I want you to know, brothers, he calls them brothers because he considers them to be Christians. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought, for I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation from Jesus Christ. So, here at Nags Head Church, and if you're our guest, if you're new to our church, uh, let me tell you some things about us and, and our gospel that we preach here. Here at Nags Head Church, we use Bible terms. We talk about believing. We talk about faith. We talk about trust. They are the same thing in the Bible. and all come from the same word in the Greek. We talk about, like John says, to as many as received him. To them, he gave the right, the authority to become the sons of God. And so we talk about receiving Christ to describe salvation. We're not afraid here to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away sin. We're not, we don't shy away from terms like born again. And we try very, very hard not to confuse the free gift of salvation with things that follow in the life of a Christian. I heard Charles Stanley. Anybody ever hear of Charles Stanley? Great preacher, great, great, great pastor. I heard him say in a pastor's conference probably 20 plus years, 25 years ago. And he made this statement, and I'll quote him. He said, he said, he told these Baptist preachers, we cannot front load the gospel by telling people they've got to do this and that and the other to be saved. And by front load, he simply meant you can't tell people 
that you, you've got to, you come to Jesus by faith in Christ, but before you come to Jesus, you've got to quit this and quit that and do this and do that. He said, that's front. the gospel says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says all we're able to do, all that's required of you and me is to believe that because of my sin, Jesus came and he lived the perfect life and then he died to pay for my sin and he rose from the grave to give me everlasting life. And that's what faith in Christ is. It's belief in Christ plus nothing, plus nothing. Some may ask, well, who, do you, who, who was Timothy? Who do you think you are, Rick? Who do, you, who do we think we are as a church to guard something that's eternal like the gospel? And the simple answer, and Paul gave it here, he said, you guard it through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The, the simple answer is that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're unable to take on that task. We can't guard the gospel unless the Holy Spirit has given us the ability to do that. Because we'll back down from the gospel. We'll back down from the pressure. We need the Holy Spirit's power working within us to do that. It's his gospel, but he's given us the task of getting it straight, setting it straight, keeping it straight, to use by his strength. Nothing that we're called to do in the Christian life, Christian, is ever on our own. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us to empower us to do those things. So let me pause for just a moment, kind of take a, a time out for a moment and ask a question of everybody here in this room. I can't see in anybody's heart. I don't know what's there. I don't know truly. And I know a lot of you in this room, a lot of you I don't know. But I don't know what's in anybody's heart. You can't see what's in my heart, and I'm thankful for that. But let me ask you a question. Are you counting on other things? Are you thinking about eternity and one day heaven and so forth, but are you counting on other things than faith in Christ alone? Are you counting in, but I'm, I'm in church, man. Are you counting on, you know, I'm, I'm going to give and I'm going to, I did shoe boxes and I, I've done all kinds of good things. I've been baptized, joined the church. What are you counting on? If you're counting on any of those things to go to heaven, you're going to miss the boat. It's going to leave without you because you've got the only thing that counts is faith in Christ alone. If you're not trusting solely in Christ, but in your own efforts, you won't make it. It won't work. So if you're not sure, you may say, man, Rick, you've just raised some doubts in my mind now. I'm not sure. That's, that's a good thing. Um, not to cause you doubts. If you truly know Jesus is your Savior, you should never doubt. All right? First John, John said, these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us not to doubt, but maybe you don't know. Our pastors will be here after the service here, and they would love to talk with you. You write on a connect card. Help me understand this. Guard the gospel, Timothy. Guard the gospel, Nexon Church. Then number three, third thing, lesson for us today, is serve God's people in need. Serve God's people in need. Paul continues with some examples. One example is a couple of people who have been ashamed of him and abandoned him. And then the other example is a man who has served him in a time of great need. Uh, those of you who have served in the military, we have some military veterans here Last Sunday, we talked about Veterans Day. But those of you who have served in the military, especially if you've ever served in the Army or the Marines, in the infantry, uh, you understand the meaning of the position in a platoon of the point man. Anybody understand point man? 
and you're in the army. You got you know what a point man is. Point man is the guy in a platoon that's out there um, seeking the enemy, trying to find the enemy and so forth. The point man is the guy that the sergeant says to private, you're the point man today, which means we're going to walk in a file, in a line, through the jungle, through wherever it might be, and you're up front. That poses some danger for the point man, doesn't it? It gives him some responsibility, too. He's got to stay alert because he's looking for the enemy. But it also puts him in the place where they're looking for him. Paul, the apostle Paul, being an evangelist, being a missionary, being an apostle, Paul was, for the first century, the point man. He was the first to enter a territory. He was the first to go into a city with the gospel. And as such, he was the first one attacked. He was the first to get the the stonings. He was the first to get the mockings. He was the first to be thrown in prison because he was the point man for the gospel in that part of the world. And Paul says this. Did you catch this little thing he said? He said, this you know, all those in Asia have turned for me. Now, when you and I think of Asia, I think of China, and I think of India, and I think of Southeast Asia, and and that part of the world, but that wasn't Asia in the first century. Let me show you Asia. Here's a map. (coughs) Excuse me, this kind of reddish part, that's Asia right there, Uh, what they considered Asia. Now, we look at it and say, well, I've heard that described, that peninsula described as Asia Minor. Have you ever heard that term? That's what they taught me in school. That's Asia Minor, and then Asia Major, you know, China and India and all that is over here on the map somewhere. That was Asia. And he says, all those in Asia, this province, Roman province of Asia, have abandoned me. It's interesting, too, that if you look at the map and you see the cities right here, there's seven of them with yellow dots. Those are the cities where churches were located that Jesus had letters sent letters to in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And most of them he had great criticism for because they had abandoned the faith. Paul says, all Asia has abandoned me and, uh, and, and forgotten about me and let me go. And by the way, Ephesus, where Timothy was, is right there in Asia. It's a port city, a major important city. He names two men who were there likely in in this church in Ephesus because he names them knowing that Timothy probably knows them, Phagellus and Hermogenes. And he names them for a reason because perhaps they were the instigators in a movement to separate the church from Paul. Here's what this thought occurred to me as I'm preaching the last service. I hadn't thought about this. Maybe these two guys were from that same group of elders that he addressed in Acts chapter 20. Could have been leaders from within the church, but he names these guys. And he says to Timothy, don't follow their example. And a lot of Christian people today would read this and hear this, and man, he called their names. Some people would cringe at that and say, gosh, Paul, you're being judgmental. That's not nice, Paul, but nice has to be balanced and with honesty and care for the church. This is important, Timothy that I call these names out to you. The Ephesians needed to know what these guys had done and that Paul was aware of it and needed to let them know, you just don't let these things slide. They've turned away from me. But then he names another guy. 
Onesiphorus. Say that with me all together. Ready? Onesiphorus. See how smart you are? You, you could be up here doing this. All right now. Onesiphorus was different. He said, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he's done these things. He served me. He was there in Ephesus, apparently. Maybe he's another elder in the church. We don't know. We don't know anything about these guys other than what they're mentioned, what was mentioned about them right here. But we do know this about Onesiphorus. He said, he was not ashamed of my chains. That I'm in prison right now, he wasn't ashamed of that. He made an effort to go to Rome and find Paul and then to find ways to meet his needs and the needs that Paul had in this dark, dank dungeon of a prison in Rome were probably simple things like food, clothing, warm, dry clothing. And it's, it's most likely that that's what Onesiphorus did is he brought some food and clothing to Paul. But one thing the gospel does, Christian, I talked about not front-loading the gospel with things Good works, but after we become Christians, we should be all about good works and serving one another in the church. One thing the gospel does in us is it compels us to serve one another, especially those who are in need. Because the gospel, one thing that it does is it changes us to become like Jesus and instills his compassion in us for one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples because you have what? love for one another. And the only true way to demonstrate that love is by serving. That's how we show it. What do you mean? I can say I love you till the cows come home, you know, all day long. I can tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. And those are nice things to hear, aren't they? But talk is cheap. Serving takes risks. Serving requires something of me. There is a cost to serve, going down into the prison like Onesiphorus did with food and clothing probably, identifying with Paul who was there on death row was taking a risk in his own life because they might've said, hey, this guy is with, he's in cahoots with this guy. Jesus said in the Beatitudes that we studied back in the spring, he said that those who show mercy will be shown mercy by the Lord and his kingdom, Matthew 5, 7. And perhaps Onesiphorus showed Paul mercy. And as Paul said, I love the way he says this, he, he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He refreshed him by these things that he brought and by his encouragement, maybe just sitting down and talking with him in the cell. This man obviously was unashamed to go to Paul and minister to him. He had three choices, by the way. He's going to Rome. He's leaving Ephesus. He's going to Rome to see Paul. He had three choices. One choice he could have made was he could have avoided any contact at all with the Christians. I'm not going to see any Christians. I don't want to be identified with them. Because of the danger in Rome, they were putting Christians to death. They were thrown into the lions, crucifying them. Nero was the emperor. He was a horrible man. He could have met secret with, secretly with the church. He could have said, I'm going to go and find the church and meet with them, but I'm not going to let anybody know I'm there, and I don't want them to spread the news that I'm there to go see Paul and keep it a secret. Or he could have, number three, exposed himself to danger by visiting Paul in prison. And he chose number three. Here's something I want you to remember, because we have a lot of people involved in ministry in our church here at Nags Head. Most of our church is. But one thing that we need to understand about ministry, because ministry is serving people. 
Ministry is serving one another in the church. And ministry is often messy. Often messy. It would be nice if it wasn't, but many, many times it is. So Paul ends with a wish for his friend Onesiphorus. And again, it shows his focus on the time of reward for Christians at Christ's judgment seat. And it's a prayer. He says in verse 18, may the Lord grant that he, Onesiphorus, obtain mercy from him on that day. That day when he and I and all the rest of us who know Jesus will stand before him at his judgment seat. May he be shown mercy on that day. Now, we don't know why he would need to be shown mercy, but maybe it's because Onesiphorus maybe wasn't, prior to this point in his life, wasn't wasn't active in ministry, wasn't doing anything. And finally, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of him and said, you need to get up and get involved. You need to do something. And when Paul needed someone to show up and help him, Onesiphorus answered the call. So let me ask you a question. Church, guests, whoever you might be today, how about you? Are you nominal in your serving the family of God? Just doing what I have to, just, you know, I've signed up for this and that's all I'm going to do. Not going to do anymore. Nominal in it. Are you content to let others serve you? Yet you haven't stepped up to the plate and found a place of ministry in the church. Are you content to do that? Again, Paul mentions that day here, as he mentioned at the end of verse 12. He talked about that day and Paul's motivation. That This is what motivates me to do the service, the ministry that I do, is I know I'll stand before Christ and he'll hold me accountable. Every day, one of us, every one of us who know Christ will stand there as well. Am I ready for that day? Let's bow for prayer. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.